the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yeah, they checked my ID at the door, and yes, indeed, they're going to let me uh, let me hang out with you for a while here. <laughs> of course, uh, it was my door they checked it at, so you really can't trust the people you're working with. Welcome. Good to have you with us. It is, of course, the Wednesday May 20th edition of Lifeline, and I trust under the circumstances you're uh, staying safe and staying well and and coping as best uh, you certainly can, as we all are, in in dealing with this ongoing uh, pandemic and the uh, the ancillary fallout, which has been pretty severe, no doubt about that. And um, even as though there's great optimism for um, recovery on the opposite side, I think it's going to be an uphill climb, certainly economically for a lot of folks for some time to come. But we're going to dispense with the bad news. There's a mountain of it out there. We are going to talk about some good news on the program tonight. Real privilege coming up on tonight's program is on this very day, May 20th, 75 years ago, 1945, the war, of course, in Europe had just ended, another three months before the war in the Pacific Theater would come to a close. But even that early on, Foreign pilots that had worked with the U.S. government and the RAF were beginning to contemplate about the future and specifically how they could put these newfound skills as pilots to work for the sake of the gospel. That was the very birth of Mission Aviation Fellowship. And its president will join us today as they mark and celebrate the 75th anniversary of this amazing ministry and the wonderful things that they're doing around the globe. We'll get to that conversation a little bit later on in tonight's program. I want to lead off with a story we mentioned last night. I want to repeat it again today in case you weren't with us and hadn't heard the news that Robbie Zacharias who, of course, has been a prominent fixture here on KFAX Radio for many, many years and a very well-known and highly respected Christian apologetics author and speaker. He passed away yesterday at the age of 74 following a protracted battle with a rare form of cancer. Ravi, of course, was born in India. While raised in a Christian home, he considered himself a religious skeptic until the age of 17 following a suicide attempt. While hospitalized, Zacharias was visited by a Youth for Christ director who gave him a Bible, and hearing the verse in John 14, Because I live, you also will live, he surrendered his life to Christ. And of course, uh, later on went to find uh, found the um, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, which uh, has had a global outreach and impact, and, and certainly one of the leading apologists of our time. Um, some have compared it with the likes of even a Francis Schaeffer. And so um, while we mourn his loss, we celebrate uh, his victory over death in the grave. Ravi Zacharias again passed yesterday at the age of 74. All right, let's turn to um, some other issues here. 
locally, and this has been one that we've been covering for some time, and it seems to be one that has the sort of um, political creep to it, and, and I'll use that word in, in both definitions of it, political creep in the sense that it's a growing issue. First, there was a hubbub about the need for so-called unisex bathrooms. And then for children so inclined, we needed to create shared gym classes and locker rooms. Even more recently, legislation working through the legislature here in California that would consider creating so-called gender-neutral toy stores and hand down penalties for those stores that divided their toys between boys and girls. Well, if that isn't upsetting enough, the hysteria over gender dysphoria continues now as state legislators are contemplating taking $15 million. I'm going to tell you right now, it's $15 million that the state doesn't have and the feds don't have. None of us have. $15 million. Do I read this right? Greg Burt, to provide hormone treatment and sex reassignment surgery for minors? Greg Bird, director of capital engagement with the California Family Council. I suppose if this were 10 years ago in a different state, I'd say, nah, this has got to be an item out of the onion. But, but sadly, this is legitimate. Tell us what's going on here. No, there was a bill up in the Assembly Health Committee yesterday. It was AB 2218. Uh, it's called the Transgender Wellness and Equity Fund. And more or less, this is how the state thinks they um, are going to help folks who are really struggling with their gender identity. They think they're trapped in the wrong body, and now the state is going to fund really uh, these operations and these hormones that do permanent damage to adults as well as minors. So it's, it really is concerning. Well, and, and equally concerning is uh, the fact that in, in some testimony before the committee, um, given by people that are experienced, learned, with the proper credentials, warning about the potential dangers of all of this, and yet seemingly across the board just ignored. Uh, I'm referring, of course, to the testimony given by Dr. Quentin Van Meter, who is a respected pediatric endocrinologist who apparently had warned state legislators about just how dangerous this bill can be, particularly when you're, when you're providing surgery and medical procedures for children that are not even of age yet, that, that you know, may indeed be struggling with a lot of emotional issues, gender dysphoria amongst them. And so instead of trying to find treatment for a child and give them some direction, it's as if we're we're giving into this. I mean, I, I, who amongst us would say if your if your fourteen year old son or daughter came to you and said, "You know, Dad, I've decided that I'm going to be an alcoholic and I really like liquor and I want to start drinking, so you got to give me uh, access to the liquor cabin or you know, uh, you give me some money and take me down to the um, the local liquor store because this is what I need because this is what I decided." Well, anybody would say a parent that would do something like that. Uh, on to have their parental rights immediately terminated and that child put into a safer environment. And yet that nature of abuse is exactly what the California state legislature is considering doing. And best of all, Greg, best of all, using tax dollars to do it. 
No, exactly. We we tried uh, yesterday to warn them. I, I brought in two great witnesses. Uh, one of the witnesses, her name, uh, I think we talked about her before, uh, was Laura Perry. She actually uh, went through the hormone treatment and surgery to become a man, and she lived as a man for eight years. But in, at the beginning, she said she felt great. But, um, but as the time went on, she realized that these surgeries were not making her a man. And, and she knew eventually she realized these were only fake. And that's exactly what uh, the uh, endocrinologist said that we brought in. He's been working on these issues for 44 years. He said, he said this, is, this is similar to offering young children uh, a carousel ride. Um, children who are emotionally troubled and depressed and even sexually abused, and you offer them this false hope. And initially, they think it works, but he said eventually they realize that this carousel turns into something akin to circular hell. Because after 10 years of being on this roller coaster of drugs and operations, it, the, the glamour wears off. And he, he warned the legislature that you were going to have a bunch of young uh, uh, people who were persuaded their youth that this was good, coming back decades later to sue the state and everybody else who put the, them on these damaging, permanently damaging uh, drugs and sex change operations. I mean, know, how, how this can't be considered child abuse from the very onset is absolutely beyond me. I mean, to, to begin with, what, what, do we, what, what is going through the minds of, of anybody that would propose such a measure as this, Greg, to even begin to think or contemplate that a, that a minor child is capable of making that kind of lifelong impacting sort of decision? I mean, there's a reason why we don't let 13-year-olds get married, uh, go to war, they can't vote. I mean, you know, there, there's such a thing as age of accountability. Now, I, uh, not for a moment am I suggesting that even once you turn 18 that this is, a, this is a good or a healthy idea. I think it's abhorrent. But to suggest that we're going to allow a minor make this kind of decision and let alone now the California taxpayer is going to have to foot the bill. I, I mean, I, I just, again, as I said in my opening remarks, Greg, if this was an item out of the onion, I, I would be waiting for you to say, aha, Roberts, we got you. It's April 15th. But unfortunately, um, there's, there's, no, there's no April Fool's joke here, is there? Well, this is, the reason this is happening is because there's not enough doctors, there's not enough leaders, there's not even enough religious leaders speaking up on behalf of these kids. I mean, really, even the medical community has been taken in by this thing, and they, because of the political pressure, they have caved. Um, many doctors who uh, speak up about these things uh, lose their licenses, are threatened. Um, even the indro society itself, as this uh, the doctor we had te testified, he says they actually endorse affirmation uh, treatments to these young kids. So they encouraged affirming a child's gender confusion. But at the same time, they publish guidelines that say the use of testosterone in women um, is well known to have adverse effects. So he says they, 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 
they at one point are luring and giving credibility to to those who are giving kids these treatments. At the same time, they're they're warning them that hormones could actually harm them, and so. That is one of our biggest problems, is actually finding doctors willing to speak up um, because they know what would happen to them uh, if they speak out uh, against the power that the LGBT rights activists have right now in California. And sadly, there is no medical evidence to support this is good, a good idea. There is no psychological evidence to support that this is a good idea. There is no parental history, no familial history that would support that this is a good idea. And in fact, as you suggest, Greg, there have been acknowledgments that there are many aspects of this that's a horrible idea. And yet, let's plow down that road anyway. Uh, damn the torpedoes, as they say, and, and, and off we go. Um, quickly... Where is this standing right now? Uh, is it moving next to the Assembly Appropriations Committee? It's gone that far? That's right. So this is just the first committee hearing in the process. So it will now go to the Appropriations Committee and the Assembly before it flips over to the Senate. So we have a while to, to fight this, right? But it's, it's going to take uh, legislators. It's going to take uh, community leaders. It's going to take enough people to be outraged. If there's no outrage, this is just going to go through. Um, so I'm, I'm sounding the alarm the best I can um, and, and pray that people's hearts will be changed. Well, and let's those that have a, a sense of righteousness and right about them uh, will stand up and let their voice be heard. This um, debacle is Assembly Bill 2218 2218 that um, now passed through the Assembly Health Committee, that's a joke, um, would take $15 million and, uh, and create, uh, again, a, a, um, a kitty here that could be used to treat minors, children, with cross-sex hormones, along with other therapies related to gender dysphoria. AB2218, urgent, urgent, that you contact your member of the California State Legislature and um, urge them to vote no on this dangerous, ill-conceived piece of legislation. More information available at californiafamily.org. Our thanks to Greg Burt, Director of Capital Engagement with the California Family Council for that update. Unbelievable. All right, 519, let's get you caught up on some traffic here and see how unbelievable that may be. Yeah, not so bad these days. Here's the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The peaceful transition of power in the United States as uh, one presidency hands off the next one is one that we have successfully and safely negotiated without coming to blows or uh, um, cries of war for uh, the better part of going on 300 years. And, of course, that transition is a very lengthy and involved and complicated one, as you might well imagine. And so the process leaning into that change in leadership begins very early on. In fact, you may not be aware of this, but by federal law, Right now, even though we are months away from the fall election, preparations are underway to help sort of bring into the inner circle um, 
members of the Biden transition team. You say, Craig, what are you talking about? Well, Biden's not transitioning into anything. The election's not even happened yet. No, it hasn't. But on the outside chance, and this happens every four years, on the outside chance that the other side wins, there needs to be time enough to prepare for the transition because it is so weighty, so heavy, so involved. And so with all of that, the, the notion of, of meetings that take place and conversations are, are quite usual, and particularly when we know to a certainty that, yes, this transition is going to happen and to whom, that's usually the night of the general election, then things really go into fast gear, high gear rather. And, and while that presidency may be in the process of winding down and looking forward to a final Christmas in the White House and a final New Year's in the White House before the new occupant takes over on the 22nd of January, um, the, the motion going on behind the scenes is frenetic, getting ready for that smooth transition of power. And so the notion of members of the outgoing team talking and meeting with folks that are there right now and beginning to dialogue with their peers and the people that they will be interacting with in their new role come the future. Not unusual at all. Goes on all the time. And yet, oddly enough, th there seems to be a little bit of a hitch in the giddy-up in relationship to that smooth transition that should have taken place smoothly between the presidency or the administration of Barack Obama and that of President Trump. But if anything, it's been wrought with mystery and intrigue and questions being raised about whether or not a national security advisor should be even dialoguing with some of his peers. There's a new declassified email from Susan Rice that confirms that Michael Flynn seemed to have been a target from early on. And ironically, there's no evidence to this day of any significant wrongdoing of any sort. I mean, uh, other than having a dialogue with the Russian ambassador. Um, but you know what? In times past, I've even talked with a Russian ambassador. I wonder if I broke a law. <laughs> Let's see if we can understand what's going on here. Joining me now is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, Pete Peterson. Pete, it's always good to have you with us. Great to be back with you. You know, all this cloak and dagger stuff, uh, you know, I, I, I guess it would be okay if at the end of the who's done it, there's actually somebody who done it. But in this case, it seems to be sorely lacking. It seems as if the, the script writers need to go back to, uh, uh, to the beginning, you know, page one, chapter one, and, and rethink this plot line all over again, especially as now we're beginning to see more and more coming to light that would suggest that there was just no there there. No, that's right, Craig. This is uh, an amazing series of developments, which, as you say, uh, more of these documents are forthcoming. But the situation, at least as we know it, it appears to be pretty clear. Uh, we had an incoming national security advisor in General Flynn in that interim period between the 2016 election in November and the actual inauguration. Uh, was engaged in conversations with the Russian ambassador, Kislyak, as you say. And so just on the face of things, it wouldn't seem that this would be untoward. I mean, this is somebody that's obviously is going to be assuming a senior leadership position in American foreign policy in Flynn, engaged with the Russian ambassador, 
that somehow the Obama administration, particularly through the FBI, saw fit to wiretap these conversations, I'm sure among many, and then reported those findings back to the President of the United States in January, at least it could have been even earlier, that Flynn, whose name was unmasked to find this out because most are not actually supposed to know um, who the American citizen is that's involved in these phone calls, uh, that Flynn was engaged in these conversations and that there was something supposedly problematic about it. Um, the next step, of course, was the leaking of this information uh, to the Washington Post, and particularly a reporter named David Ignatius, who then began what could only be called an inside-outside game between the administration, the FBI, and the Washington Post to bring pressure on Flynn. And um, a lot more uh, will be forthcoming, but at least what we know thus far is extremely disturbing. We know that the leaking is illegal. So to say that nothing illegal happened here, as many of our friends on the left do, is simply not true. But in the very least, it appears to be an abuse of power. And help me understand something here. And I realize that we're 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 long on uh, speculation and, and short on specifics. But what what is alleged to have taken place in these conversations that is so egregious? That's the I don't know how many million dollar question. <laughs> uh, if we were to <laughs> if we were to try to cost out the cost of the Mueller investigation, which. So much of this collusion narrative originated right here, right in this set of events that we're discussing. Um, it would be tough to to quantify, but we don't know what happened specifically, what was said. Again, on the face of it, while some might say, well, why, why would somebody uh, in the incoming administration be speaking to the Russian ambassador? When you consider that it is the incoming national security advisor, again, on the face, it makes complete sense. Um, well, and as but, I suggested in my opening remarks, Pete, I mean, th these these dialogues, maybe not at that level, but, but dialogues with regard to smooth transition are underway right now, only because if, if, it, if it indeed sees a change of power in November, there needs to be enough time. This is, this is not an overnight thing here. So the fact that the dialogue was taking place prior to Donald Trump being inaugurated, but the president-elect, operative word president-elect, I, I mean, again, it just, it just, this seems to be a, um, in a, I don't know, what's the, with the old adage? It seems to be a solution in search of a problem. No, you're absolutely right, uh, Craig. And again, um, I, if this was just an isolated instance that it just started and stopped and ended with Flynn, that would be one thing. But as we're also beginning to see, there was a very important piece to release just this week on the website, Real Clear Investigations, which is part of the respected Real Clear policy uh, chain of uh, news organizations. They showed that after the inauguration, 
aides to Hillary Clinton, notably John Podesta, her 2016 campaign chairman, continued to push this Russian collusion narrative with contacts in the FBI as well as uh, with friends in the media. And so building on this story around Flynn, it was just furthered by those around Hillary Clinton's inner circle, uh, again, as a way of damaging the president and contributing to what was eventually the Mueller investigation. So this getting the, the Flynn story right is really so important because that really was the genesis of everything then that's built forth with this so-called collusion narrative. And, and, you know, to look at it, you would almost say on, on the surface, at face value, it appears to be by design for destabilization purposes. The, the, the problem is that destabilization would effectively take place between one of our historic enemies and arguably still a significant threat to American democracy. I know some people may want to parse words on that, but, but I, 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 I don't see Mr. Putin and company as uh, being uh, big defenders of American democracy. But that said, it almost appears as if the motivation here then was nothing short of, of destabilization that could have had horrific consequences. I mean, set aside the political consequences for a moment. The national security consequences could have been devastating. Absolutely right, Craig. I mean, the, one of the great ironies of these last three years as it relates to this Russian collusion narrative is that while the Democrats had accused President Trump of collusion and certainly with its origins in this Flynn-Kislyak uh, relationship, it was that Steele dossier which ostensibly came from Russian intelligence sources obviously found out to be false that also instigated the future Mueller investigation. And so while the Democrats would say that the relationship was really between Trump and Putin somehow, it was really this disinformation that came into the Democrats' hands through the Steele dossier that triggered all of these investigations that ultimately were meant uh, to attack President Trump. And it all falls under this larger mission of Russian intelligence, which we've known since the Cold War, that their goal isn't necessarily one side of a presidential election over another. It is just chaos. And they've obviously succeeded in this. Well, they would they, they wish to see nothing more than um, destabilization yes. of America. And, and what better thing to do than to stir the pot and create um, political turmoil, get everybody going at each other's throats and, uh, you know, uh, call into question and raise doubts at every turn and every corner. Uh, talk about an effective uh, means. I mean, you know, we have to understand here that when you're, you're potentially at a war, I'm not suggesting we are, although this sort of feels like Cold War Part Two, but that said, realize that the weapons of warfare are not 
singularly guns and tanks and planes. Uh, propaganda and misinformation can also be very effective tools, and clearly there's an agenda here. Pete, we appreciate you taking some time to uh, sort of pull back the curtain as best you can. I realize that we are perhaps a, a long ways off from fully understanding not only what transpired, but most importantly, what the ultimate motivation was and how any of this serves the good of the American people. Pete Peterson, Dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Information available on the web at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. All right, 537. Let's uh, get caught up here. We're a bit late. So traffic-wise, the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We reported on this program just a day ago that the governor of Oregon is in hot water because of gubernatorial overreach as it relates to the shelter-in-place orders impacting Oregonians and churches across Oregon. And, uh, you know, remember they talked about sort of that, uh, that tri-state pact between Oregon, Washington, and uh, California, that they would all sort of move in unity? Well, if that be the case, then it's, it's making its way south because uh, today we hear that the Justice Department, on the same day, has put California Governor Gavin Newsom on notice, saying that the plan for the state's staggered reopening from the threat posed by coronavirus discriminates against religious groups. Now, the Assistant Attorney General, Chief of the Department's Civil Rights Division, warned the governor that places of worship were being forced to take a back seat, essentially, to a gradual resumption of operations at schools, restaurants, offices, and shopping malls, and this, of course, can be very problematic from a constitutional standpoint. We've invited constitutional lawyer and the president and founder of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, to come back on again, and uh, in a moment we'll tell you about a special conference call that you can participate in tomorrow as a pastor or church leader to understand more about the reopening of California. But in the meanwhile, uh, th this, this is sort of the second wallop and uh, I guess uh, we're waiting for the shoe to drop in Washington State. <laughs> and then all three will be on notice. Brad, welcome. Well, it's great to be the program. Thank you. Let's talk about this. Uh, your reaction to the Department of Justice now joining the phrase saying, guys, this is a bit of a field too far. Uh, is the concern in California similar to what we see in Oregon? Uh, yes, uh, it is. Uh, you know, we, we see you know, the shutdowns. We see churches not able to meet. Um, it's a different legal battle that we're about to uh, uh, experience in California, and that uh, in Oregon we are directly we at Pacific Justice we filed a lawsuit to directly challenge the governor's uh, abuse of the Emergency uh, Act pursuant to uh, the limitations on time. The, the governor in Oregon, uh, you know, the, the judge ruled in our lawsuit has you know, only 28 days before she has to get three fifths of the State Assembly and the State Senate in Oregon to approve her to continue with her emergency uh, orders, and uh, she didn't do that. Well, in California, it's more of a direct uh, affront to the merits and uh, the, the rationale and the actual treatment of, of churches specifically. The Attorney General Barr, in a, a very uh, well-written letter, uh, pointed out that California, unlike other states, by the way, um, California is uh, very blatant in how it's uh, unfair it's treating churches and that it's allowing 
you know, the schools to open up in, in what's called stage two uh, uh, portions of California. Um, also, you know, some restaurants and uh, other places, you know, manufacturing uh, plants are, are being opened up in L.A. County. Uh, there's not, but they're not allowing churches to open. Um, and we see this, this real clear double things. Hollywood, by the way, you know, the, the, the movie studios, they're totally afraid. They're totally allowed to open up, do their things, produce their stuff. Um, you know, but but churches, they're totally sh- they're shut down, and so the gut, the uh, attorney general Barr pointed out very clearly. I was expecting that. Um, I was I'm willing to bet that there was probably even a conversation before this public letter was sent to the the governor. Uh, but we knew there was going to be a a uh, conversation, if you will, communication. It did finally come out. Uh, I can't give too much details on what we at Pacific Justice Institute. Are doing in our strategy, but I can say that we are uh, working on it, and we are in communications with the Department of Justice. This is not just singularly, of course, California or Oregon on the opposite coast, on the East Coast. Um, earlier this month, a justice there sided with a Virginia church that had put forward a challenge to the state's shutdown um, that in that case had limited the size of religious gatherings. And, of course, the argument there is it violates constitutional guarantees of um, freedom of assembly and freedom of expression. Yeah, and it's, um, it's, it's really harsh, particularly for, for larger churches. You know, the real standard should be safe distancing. You can have a, a large church but still have safe distancing, uh, and appropriate safety measures take place that would provide just as much safety as uh, a church uh, with a, a smaller congregation, as long as you have the same uh, degree of people being spaced out and, and they're sitting and, and, and exiting and things like that. We at Pacific Justice Institute, as you know, Craig, have gone out of our way to really serve churches. And before we even thought about or you talked about a lawsuit, we were researching for churches uh, a checklist. It's a 96-point checklist for indoor services, another checklist for outdoor services, and also for drive-in services to really empower them to be able to confidently have their church service legally and safely and uh, to be able to uh, make sure that they don't their church doesn't become a hot spot. Uh, I've, uh, a war reporter asked me, Craig, he said, well, you know, aren't you concerned that these churches could be dangerous, you know, that people meeting and everything? I said, you know, you know churches carrying out our checklist uh, enables them to be the safest building you can be in in the state of California. The safest, because the standards are so high, and churches are willing to do that if the governor will just simply allow them to be treated fairly and equally and not put on the back of a bus, which is what Governor Gavin Newsom is now doing. And we're very happy that Attorney General Barr has uh, called him out on it, and hopefully um, in the near future, the not-too-distant future, uh, we'll see uh, action taken one way or the other. Now, states or perhaps at the very least uh, local municipalities, maybe through their uh, planning commissions and, um, you know, uh, building uh, departments and so forth, already stipulate safe zones. And and by that, I mean they they, they stipulate in the sense that uh, they will say, for example, that the capacity of this restaurant, and you generally see it posted, the capacity of this restaurant is X number of people. And I suppose that's based on layout, uh, proximity to the number 
of exits, things of this sort. So there, there's there's some kind of formula. There's a calculation that that is used to determine what is a safe occupancy for a movie theater, a restaurant, a church, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So if those sorts of policies are are enacted and exercised and controlled on a day-to-day basis, what would be so difficult for a local municipality, a county, or the state to simply say, okay, here are the temporary rules. Um, as you open up, it has to be, you know, six feet in all directions. Everybody gets their own little 144 square feet of the world, and, and there you have it. And whatever that will accommodate, divide it into the, the, the square footage, the usable square footage of a building. There's your number. Uh, this way, it's, it's fair and equitable. Bigger churches are going to haps, perhaps have a, a problem. Who's to say? But uh, at the end of the day, that seems to be far less arbitrary than the approach being used right now. Oh, right. Yeah, the approach saying, uh, well, oh, you're going to worship and have a sermon? Okay, that's, you're not allowed. Oh, but you're going to be serving food? Okay, or have a school? Okay, that's allowed. It, that's, that's illogical. That's not even based on science. That's just based on prejudice. And I, I agree 100%. Uh, there's, these policies can be implemented. Uh, churches, along with everyone else, can be given. Here's the safety policies. Here's, here it is. Now let's go ahead and open and operate safely. Uh, that's um, you know that's what other states are doing. You know Texas and other states are doing that, and their their rates not increasing. Uh, it's it's a uh, in fact a federal judge in North Carolina said that to the governor of North Carolina says you've got to stop this because you've given no evidence that shutting down churches is going to help. These other states have open churches and they're doing just fine. There's no increased risk of harm. Um, this has got to come to a halt. So uh, we, we we're seeing more courts moving in this direction. And um, we're going to continue with Pacific Justice to those other states that we're involved in. I can't talk about now, but we're working very aggressively to hold these uh, tyrannical governors in these dark blue states uh, accountable uh, to their limitations of powers and not to be dictators and uh, much less oppress people in their free exercise of religion. Now, you've indicated, though, that there needs to be very careful guidelines that are being followed that's based yes. on sort of best practices in relationship to opening up. And, and I, I, I want to underscore that for a moment on news out of Georgia, where, as some folks know, they began opening things here a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it has now become news that Castuga Baptist Tabernacle in the community of Ringgold, Georgia, um, has had the backtrack, and where they had earlier uh, opened their church and began having services, uh, they have now announced that they are no longer going to be offering so, so-called in-person worship services for the foreseeable future. This in response to a challenge that quite a number of people in the congregation have now tested positive for COVID-19. Now, this in spite of the fact that, as the church claims, they were, quote, seating marked to only permit uh, within the six-foot guidelines, doors open to allow access without touching the doors, attendees asked to enter in a social distancing manner and dismissed in a formal manner to ensure that social distancing measures were all adhered. And yet it seems that the opportunistic nature of this virus, in spite of their best efforts, uh, got the best of them. Now, at the end of the day, of course, it begs the question, 
This is the news report. How close to these guidelines did they actually really follow? And as we know, you know, the temptation to take the mask off, scratch your nose, what have you, because it's, you know, for most of us, a habit that's been developed over 40, 50, 60 years is a very difficult one to break. As, as conscience, uh, conscious as we try to be um, over things like, you know, wash your hands for 20 seconds, et cetera, et cetera. So with things like this, how do we go about balancing this very, this very delicate challenge? Uh, challenge between the protection of First Amendment rights, the ability of believers to assemble themselves and, and experience and enjoy a communal worship experience against the health challenges and the opportunistic nature of this disease. Yeah, well, first, I, I, it's, a, it's, it's a shame what happened in Georgia. Uh, the bottom line, if the, if the safety checklist is followed out and, and carried out, uh, as, it, as we make it very easy and clearly, clear to do, uh, you're not going to have those kind of breakouts. It's just biologically, scientifically impossible. But second, pastors do need to, to you know, take that responsibility to communicate this, to have a Sunday beforehand where they're practicing, uh, going through it. And also, uh, they need to be very upfront uh, to, uh, for people at risk, um, you know, of possibly dying from it, uh, to stay at home. Uh, it's very clear who is at risk. Um, you know, those who are overweight, those who are older, um, those who have type 2 diabetes, coronary issues, uh, you know, lung, uh, COPD, uh, immune, immune issues, HIV. These are people who are at high risk, and they need to stay at home. And, and it's the responsibility of the pastor not just to be friendly and say, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't be here. They need to do their job and uh, to protect their congregations. And, and if they do that, they can have a safe service for their church members, and uh, and keep things in check. And also, of course, we have the new t the testing that's coming out uh, in the very near future, all across the country. It's already in some places. Uh, that's going to be also a very valuable tool uh, to provide testing and make that available there at the church uh, as well. So, uh, what we have on our checklist, if people read it, they'll get it. They'll understand that um, there that churches can meet safely, and of course, they also want to meet legally. And that's where we come in at Pacific Justice to provide them that assistance, like we're going to do tomorrow at Thursday. Uh, at 2 p.m. Uh, on a very important conference call for church leaders and pastors to really tell them very specifically the update, where we are, and how they can legally reopen in the United States. And again, that Zoom conference call is um, open to pastors and church leaders tomorrow. That'll be at 2 p.m. Pacific time. Now, you, there's no cost for this, of course, but you do need to, to register to get all the participant information. And uh, the counselor, they can do that directly through the Pacific Justice website. Is that correct? That's right. It's going to be a Zoom call. So it's going to be real easy. Uh, but they need to do, register beforehand on the website. We have a number of attorneys that are going to be participating. It's, uh, I think they're, they're going to find it. We've had very strong positive feedback, and the numbers keep growing uh, every week. And um, we're looking forward to serving uh, the, the people, particularly in, this, in the state of California, who are going to be needing this assistance and advice in the very near future. Many churches are going to be open up May, May 31st. Some have already opened up. Some will be opening up after, afterwards. Uh, we want to make sure they're in the, the best, safest, and legally strongest position possible. And we're going to talk all about that tomorrow at 2 p.m. Competent attorneys issuing free advice. you got to love it. <laughs> See, there is hope yet. Again, that uh, that special conference tomorrow, that Zoom call at 2 o'clock, details and registration for pastors and church leaders by going to pacificjustice.org. 
That's pacificjustice.org. And and really, if you are anticipating uh, being back to church a week from Sunday, it is vital that you take the proper and necessary steps, first and foremost, to do it for the sake of protecting your con- congregation. And then secondarily, making sure that you're taking the necessary and appropriate steps to protect the um, the potential liabilities that could come from not taking the proper steps. All in one package tomorrow, 2 o'clock, online, registration and details, pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. Our thanks to Brad Dacus, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, for that update. 601 from KFAX San Francisco. And speaking of updates, let's get you one right now on traffic.